Welcome to the Jackie Service Show. I'm Jackie Service, where we are talking all things people strategy, entrepreneurship, and how hiring the right humans will unlock the next phase of growth in your business. As a former corporate VP of HR, my life completely shifted when I learned I had a brain tumor. From this moment forward, I knew that there was more. I dove headfirst into healing, mindset work, and spirituality. And from this space, my entrepreneur journey was born. Now I am a people strategist and founder of Serve Recruitment Agency, a boutique recruitment firm that helps scaling companies hire aligned leaders for growth. In this podcast, I'm going to share about my business journey, entrepreneurship, leadership, and how hiring the right humans unlocks massive potential. Welcome to the show. Are you confused about hiring? You're not alone. Majority of leaders struggle to figure out who they need, in what roles, and when, and how these people will have the greatest impact on the growth of their business. This is why we created People Strategy Sessions to do a deep dive into your business and help you build a clear roadmap on the talent you need to drive sustainable growth. We dive into your greater why, where you are today in your business, where you want to go in your business from a growth standpoint, and ultimately, who do you need to enable that growth overall? For more information, please send an email to Jackie at JackieService.com or feel free to reach out at Jackie Service across all platforms. Welcome back to another episode of the Jackie Service Show. I am so excited about the guest today because a lot of you who are listening come and ask me the simple question every day, which is, how do I find my number two? And so I brought a guy on that knows a thing or two about finding your second in command, Cameron Harold. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jackie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this one. We were talking off camera and, and I was sharing with you a little bit about who tunes in and who listens in. And um, we're just excited to share a bit more about you and your background because there's just so much wisdom that I know you're going to bring to this audience. Yeah, I've, I've played the number two role a few times. I've been running organizations related to the number two. I've written a book about it. I've got a podcast where actually tomorrow I'm interviewing the second in command for RFK Jr. I'm interviewing oh, amazing. his campaign manager. Yeah, which is super cool. Um, and today the episode that just came out is the second in command, the COO for WEO Bank, which is one of the newest, hottest banks in Dubai. Um, so yeah, happy to do this. Thanks for Amazing. Me. Well, before we dive into your story and a little bit more about what you're doing at COO Alliance, I'd love to chat. Um, I always do a little bit of a rapid fire so people can get to know you a little bit better. Sure. All right. Where were you raised? Grew up in Sudbury, Canada, small town. Um, it was about 80, 90,000 people when I was growing up there. I went to school in Ottawa. Uh, got involved in in running my first business when I was in Ottawa. Lived in Toronto for a bunch of years and then moved to the West Coast to Seattle to open up a group called College Pro Painters. I opened up the West Coast of the United States for them. And then from there up to Vancouver and kind of placed myself in Vancouver for about 25 years. And then now we travel full time. Mm, that's that's the next question, which is where is home now? Um, I technically, I'm a resident of Dubai. Okay. My companies are based in Dubai. Um, and as a Canadian, we're not taxed on worldwide income. So I just was able to establish everything in a tax-free zone and live above board. It's Revenue Canada clean. 
Um, but we travel full time. We were in 41 countries in the last 26 months. Incredible. That is incredible. So remind me of the story. You sold everything, decided it was time to go on the road. What was the pull to that? What, why, why the nomadic life? A few things. One was during COVID, we noticed that there were a lot of people who were traveling and living in different parts of the world. And the acceptance had really opened up that you could be anywhere doing anything. Um, my company kind of pivoted in terms of the way that we were running the business. So it enabled me to be on the road a lot more and not have to be in North America as much. My youngest son started university and he decided to go to school in Montreal, where I was in Vancouver. So like 3,000 miles away. Mm -hmm. um, what am I going to do? Sit at home and wait for you every you know, three or four months to see you. Um, so it was just easier to, to pack and go. And then my wife really wanted to explore the world as well. So we just decided to sell it all, sold our homes in the US, got rid of the place in Vancouver, sold our cars, sold all of our furniture. We have a 10 foot by five foot storage locker with some of our art and some family heirlooms. And otherwise, we've literally been on the road just, just going. Mm. It's been fun. I'm so curious about what have you, I'm sure there's a lot of things, but is there one that comes to the surface of something that you've learned about yourself as you've gone from this kind of cultural norm of you have the, you have the house, you have the things, et cetera, to let's sell it all, purge, get rid of it all, and just go to a backpack and an airplane. Like what, what's one of the biggest lessons you've learned about yourself? Well, I've always traveled. I've always loved travel. I think I'm at country 69 right now. I've always loved to travel. I've always loved to explore. I've always loved the world. I think it's probably less of what I've learned about myself because I've always been able to do that. And I've always been kind of kind of nomadic. You know, even when I had a home in Scottsdale and a home in Vancouver, I was back and forth every two weeks for 10 years. Mm. So I was on the road a lot more than normal humans tend to be. Um, and, and, you know, I, I went backpacking when I was 25 and hit 18 countries when I was 25. So I've been doing it for a while. I think what I learned is that the world is way more similar and way more, yeah, way more similar than we give it credit for. The mass media has really messed us up as humans in thinking that these different countries are so drastically different. You know, I woke up this morning in Qatar. I'm in Dubai and the, the Emirates today. I'll be up in Norway next month. I'm going to be in Japan the month after that. And like every country that we've been in, people are struggling with just being human, mm -hmm. with illness, with friendships, with poverty, with, with um, family structure, with their parents, with health. Um, we're all just walking each other home. People are good to people everywhere. Uh, you know, and uh, one thing I've been really surprised with is how safe some parts of the world are that we're told aren't safe. Mm -hmm. you, know, you could, in Dubai as an example, you could go out and put your laptop, your purse, your wallet, your iPhone, some money on a coffee table on the busiest street on a Friday at seven o'clock on the sidewalk coffee table, go for a walk for an hour and a half, come back and pick your stuff up off the coffee table and walk away. No one touches it. You leave your car doors open. You leave your condos unlocked. You, you just, no one lives in fear of stuff being stolen because they've got a system that punishes people for crime but then the honest people live a life of not being in fear women mm. walk down the street being treated well like it's it's bizarre how in canada we're having to lock our door and put our alarm system on and 
make sure nothing's left in the car in case somebody breaks in. We're always on this, this heightened state of alert. And we're told that there's parts of the world that are so unsafe. And it turns out that some of the other parts of the world are safer than we think. Mm-hmm. We are. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. That's, you know, I've done, I've done some global travel, not as much as you have. I've spent some time in Dubai and Singapore and some other areas. And yeah, I would say I found, I found myself feeling very safe and I was traveling at the time, you know, as an executive woman, woman by myself. Right. And never did I feel threatened or unsafe in some of the countries that I've been to. So good perspective there. And just the perspective yeah, shift. Mexico is another one. My, my wife spent three months down in Mexico, something like 48 cities over three months. And she felt completely safe. Meanwhile, in the news, you think like everybody's getting murdered in Mexico. It's just not so right. And there's a I lot know. of this propaganda and political stuff. I think that's being spread and, and um, yeah, it's sad to see some of that happen. Mm. Mm, thank you for sharing though. I appreciate your perspective. Um, all right. I know you've written, is it six now? Six of your own books? Six books. Okay. Yeah, you've I written six of your, writer. <laughs> six of your own books. Yeah. Do you have a book that whether it's life, spirituality, business, that's one of your favorites that you tend to go to when you're handing books to other people? Yeah. It's the book Endurance by Albert Lansing. It's about Ernest Shackleton's voyage to the Antarctic when his ship wrecked. It's about 105 years ago mm. and um, how every single person survived this almost two years living on ice floes in an island and having to go through 700 miles in this boat for them to try to get rescued and climb over this mountain range. It's only ever been done twice before. It's an unbelievable story and it's true. And um, it just always talked to to me about before it became popularized around leadership, but it talked about leadership and endurance and and going through hardship and what you can, how you can persevere um, and how you can pull together. And then we got to go to Antarctica two years ago and got to go to a couple of the places that, um, that this had all happened. And it was pretty extraordinary to be down there and realize how how rough we were there mm. in the summer, man. I can't imagine being there through the winter for two years. It would have been wow. Rough, but that's a great book. Okay. Adding it. I have not read that one. Um, no, I use this just as much for me. I'm like, great. Putting that in my cart tonight. I'll get that sent over to me. I love that. Yeah. Endurance. It's amazing. Okay. Beautiful. I'll check that one out. Last rapid fire question, which is mm. mentor, a mentor that helped you create where you are today. Yeah, Greg Clark, who is the founder of College Pro Painters, um, he built an organization that ended up becoming the largest residential house painting company on the planet. I got lucky and and rose up through the ranks very high. Um, There were 8,800 people in the company and I was in the top 30 people globally. Mm. So I was able to, you know, just learn. I got a real world MBA at a very, very young age. Um, you know, by the time I was 25, I'd personally interviewed and hired 250 people. Um, you know, I opened the West Coast of the United States for them. I hired Kimball Musk, Elon's brother, and trained him for a year. I hired his cousin, Peter Reeve, who went on to build Solar City. I just got to really cut my teeth on operations, everything related to people, stuff around culture, meeting rhythms, time management, marketing, sales, finance, just so much at a very, very young age. And Greg, I got to work very close to him. I got to see him speak a number of times. We've become friends over the years, but just a lot of, I've got a a binder of his memos that he would send out to the leadership team. Still, I kept all those because there's just so much wisdom that he had at a very, um, very early stage for me. It was highly impactful. 
That's mm, so true when we say leaders create leaders. Mm. And there are, I can think back to my own career path. There are some profound leaders that I had the privilege of working beside. And I just think, and I can go back to really pointed moments and remember that one piece of advice that still I still carry today, or that one saying that they would repeat a hundred times a week, but that's what's still imprinted in me when I'm thinking about leadership. I'll it's profound. One of the, a couple of the biggest ones I got from Greg. One was a leader's core job is to grow people. Ooh. Our job is to grow their skills and to grow their confidence. So that's always stuck with me. The second was to build an amazing business. It has to be a little bit more than a business and a little bit less than a religion. It has to be in the zone of a cult. And for me, that was very impactful because we, we ended up building, you know, 1-800-GOT-JUNK into the number two company in all of Canada to work for. I've coached multiple companies in multiple countries to go on to become number one in their country. And I really got to understand culture and what it is and where it comes from. And it's not the free massages and the free lunches. Those are perks. Um, so I think I was very lucky to be indoctrinated into some pretty bleeding edge um, leadership concepts and concepts around people at a pretty mm. age. Okay, I have to ask the question. So as a uh, woman in, in leadership in HR, I was often asked by my peers and other functionalities in the business to go fix culture. Mm. They would say, hey, Jackie, why don't you come on in here and help us fix culture? Which yes, there's a piece of the people agenda that can that can look at culture. I'm curious for you, what does culture mean? And ultimately who owns culture in an organization? Yeah. Well, the CEO has to own culture. I mean, cause it all starts at the top, right? So yeah. it all bleeds from, from that CEO and the leadership team. It's not a, a head of HR or a head of people. It has to, it has to be, it's all holistic. So for me, I visualize a company like a jigsaw puzzle and the front of the jigsaw puzzle box is your vivid vision, right? It's a four or five page description of what your company looks like, acts like, and feels like in the future. So it's an alignment with that vivid vision where every employee can see what the CEO can see. That's a starting point. And then the four corners of the jigsaw puzzle are your core values, your core purpose, your BHAG, and your one-year plan. The core values, most companies completely do it wrong. There's no obsession with core values. They won't fire people if they break their core values. Their core values are confusing. They tried to put them into some fancy acronym to make them feel cool. They don't interview against them. They don't talk about them. They don't, they don't live their core values. So for me, there has to be an obsession around all things around core values. Core purpose is that, you know, Simon Sinek, who wrote the book, Start With Why, he used to sleep on my couch. He was on our board of advisors five years before he wrote the book, Start With Why. So we had a really good indoctrination from that whole why, how, what model, the golden circle. And you need to actually have all employees understand the reason that we exist as an organization. You know, at Apple, it's to create insanely great products that challenge the status quo and change the human race. So the, you need to understand that core purpose. And there's a culty kind of component with core purpose. Your BHAG is that globally admired or that stretch that you're building, right? The 20 to 30 year march that you're on that from inside the company seems possible and from outside seems impossible. You know, Microsoft was to put a computer on every desktop, or Boeing was to democratize air travel. Google was to democratize the world's information. At 1-800-GOT-JUNK, it was to build a globally admired brand. Nike was to crush Adidas. So culture is when your employees are obsessed with the core purpose. They're obsessed with the core values. They're obsessed with the BHAG. They're aligned with that vivid vision. 
And then when leadership has the comfort to fire the people that don't fit, to fire the toxic underperformers, to fire the, the kind of cultural misfits and only attract people that are the true A players that are actually going to live all of that. That's where, for me, where culture comes from. The perks and stuff come later. Those are, those are like, that's like if you have a really rich family and, and one rich family's kids are all jerks and the other rich families, the kids are all amazing. It's because the one family raised their kids to think about core values and think about family and think about the family unit, respect their parents, right? Work through conflict. And the other one were a bunch of spoiled brats. They all had the same perks. They all had the same free stuff. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing the perspective there. I think so often culture gets pigeonholed into whether it's HR or another function within the business and is not always at the forefront of the CEO's mind because again, from a conditioned belief system, you know, yeah, we might do a one day a year workshop where we get clear on our values, but then they, they get posted on a bunch of bulletin boards across the office. And that's the only time we're talking about them. No. So for me, the number one core metric of every company more than revenue, more than profit, more than customer engagement is your employee net promoter score. So it's employee net promoter score first, customer net promoter score second, profit as a dollar figure third and revenue fourth. And it's, it, it, so for me, it's always been an obsession with employee net promoter score. And because I obsess about employees being happy, they'll care about my customers. Because I'm obsessing about employees being happy, they'll work harder. Because I'm obsessing about employees being happy, they don't feel underappreciated. They don't feel overworked. But if all I care about is the customer, employees don't feel as love, they feel stretched, they feel underappreciated, they feel like they're just getting jammed with more projects. So I end up getting a better result off caring for them, listening to them, right? And, and a lot of that has nothing to do with work. It has to do with just actually caring about them as a human. Not agree more. You're speaking my love language. I'm sitting over here just soaking in everything you're saying because it's I've I come from a very same ethos, which is when when people are our for, when people are the forefront of what we do every day, then those people are ultimately going to go and run your business. And leadership, oh. leadership, I see us slide often. I, I've looked, I've witnessed a lot of leaders that slide back into the business so often and get confused about where their focus really needs to be. And so taking this kind of string and pulling it into what you do today. I'm curious for you to share a little bit more about what it is you're up to at COO Alliance and why the passion for the second in command. Yeah. So my, well, and it's funny, my, my core purpose is to help entrepreneurs reverse engineer their dreams. So I've always wanted to help entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. I always see entrepreneurs like flies trying to get out the window and they keep banging their head on the window and they end up dead on the windowsill. And it was actually Simon Sinek was at my home in Vancouver in my kitchen. We were making dinner and he helped me craft my core purpose. So everything I do is to help entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. That's my six books, help them. My CEO, when, my CEO Alliance, when I grow their COO, it grows their company, right? My speaking events, my everything I do helps entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. The COO Alliance, I just recognized because I'd played the second in command a couple of times, no one was really serving that community. And there were, there were, organization there were so many organizations for entrepreneurs we got ypo and vistage and tech and genius network and maverick and go abundance and then there's organizations for lawyers and accountants and engineers and dentists there's trade associations for everybody but there'd really never been an organization for that second in command and i wanted to create a mastermind community 
where they could actually learn from each other, learn with each other, grow their confidence, grow their competence, grow their network. And really, I could just be there on the side, helping to kind of facilitate that. Mm, I love that. But that, that all leads to helping entrepreneurs. Yeah, I see that. Thank you for sharing your kind of core value of what it is that you're creating in the world in terms of reverse engineering that unlock for uh, for entrepreneurs and CEOs. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm curious when you when you pull COOs together, seconds and commands together, what is it that they are struggling with most? What are the core kind of competencies or core areas of the business that they need the most support with? One is communicating with their CEO in a way that works for both of them. And it's kind of like the business version of men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? Men are not hairy versions of women. We see the world differently. We perceive the world differently. We feel things differently. We approach situations differently. We manage conflict differently. We just, we're similar. We're, we're both humans, but we just see the world like... So how can men and women learn to, to communicate and collaborate? That's a skill and, and you need coaching around that. You need to work on that. You need to read lots on that. That's number one. We recognize that the personality profile of most COOs is a very different personality profile from their entrepreneur CEO. You know, Sheryl Sandberg, as an example, never wanted to be an entrepreneur. It's not like she was wanting one day to move into the CEO role. She had no desire to be a CEO. And yet she was the second in command for Facebook from when Mark was like 22 years old. She was the mentor and the the wisdom. She was the adult in the room. Mm -hmm. So we recognize that that's number one. Number two is that they really feel a lot of the imposter syndrome um, because they often work for entrepreneurs that don't recognize that praise is so necessary. Um, Praise and gratitude. And I, I joke about that with entrepreneurs that I'll work with and I'll say like, how often do you tell your wife that you love her like once every six months or how often do you tell your husband that, you know, you appreciate what he's doing every three months. They're like, no, every day you tell them every day that you love them. They're like, well, yeah, of course, of course. Right. Well, if we don't tell our employees that we love them, if we don't tell our employees that we appreciate them, if we don't tell our employees that we're grateful for all that they're doing, then they don't feel that love. And there's an often case where COOs don't feel the love from their CEO because what they're getting bombarded with is we need to fix this. We need to grow that. We need to do this. We need to buy this company. We need to expand to this division. We need to fix all these issues. Bobby's driving me fucking crazy. Can you take this business area? Cause I don't love it. Well, of course, you know, I love you. I told you that last quarter. So there's a, there's a disconnect from we need, and we work with them on that in shedding that mm-hmm. imposter syndrome that, Yes, they are getting the love and yes, they are good enough. The reason they're in the company and the role that they're in is because their CEO loves them. And sometimes they have to learn to get their own praise or to communicate to the CEO that, hey, this is what I need to you, right? What are my, and we even talk about love languages. Like if yours are words of affirmation and physical touch, then a few high fives and a couple of pats on the back, or maybe a retreat where you go away together and, you know, a, a couple of Slack messages saying, hey, you crushed it last week. That fires up a COO for weeks. So it's, it's a lot of stuff around that. It's often not much on the, the tactical day-to-day. And then the last area is, is the core, what I call the soft skills of leadership. So it's really getting them stronger at situational leadership, coaching, delegation, managing conflict, one-on-one meetings, interviewing, 
Um, it's kind of the executive functioning skills that they need to get better at. And that tends to be areas that companies don't train on until you get to a midsize or, you know, a company that has a, a real HR and a training department. Yeah. If you're in a company of 25 to 250 employees, you probably don't have a training department and a personal development department. At best, you're being told to read a book, but, you know, or the, here's a new consultant that we're bringing in, but it's not really, it's not really growing your skills. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is like, this is an ethos for that training arm, that development arm and retention arm of the number two that you bring into your business in a lot of ways. And again, that's always gone back to my belief that a leader's core job is to grow people, right? So the CEO's job is to grow the COO. The COO's job is to grow everybody in the organization and to always be looking for how do I grow people's skills and confidence? It's interesting when you think about Gen Y, there's top two things that Gen Y want in a company to work for. Number one is alignment with core purpose and core values. Like they want to have a cause that they believe in and feel good about. Number two is personal growth. They all want mm-hmm. to continue to grow in their skills. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Not true of the baby. The baby boomers weren't looking for that. Baby boomers were not out looking for skill development. They got into a company. They stayed forever. They weren't looking at causes because I don't know why, but they just didn't. Gen X were kind of caught in the middle. But if, if you recognize that that's what employees are looking for, I don't know. It's kind of like, when your six-year-old writes a letter to Santa and they say, hey, Santa, I would love these three presents, buy them the three presents. It's easy. Mm-hmm. Don't try to figure out what your kid <laughs> wants. Just whatever they wrote to Santa. Well, if your employees are telling you that they want skill development, give them skill development, then they're super happy. And if you show them the love, then they feel the love, then they're going to work harder. Love that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Let's go, let's go up a, up a level here. We just talked about once you have the COO, this is, you know, COO Alliance can support from a leaders, creating leaders, a development of those leaders, et cetera. I'm actually curious because I get asked this every day where a founder CEO will come to me and essentially say, Hey, I've read this book traction or, Hey, I was in this mastermind or, Hey, I was talking to my friend, Bob. And everyone's saying, I need a number two. I need a second in command. Yeah. And often I'll pull us back and get some clarity before we actually decide that that's truly what we need. But I'm curious your philosophy or how you walk somebody through, a leader through their readiness to bring in a second in command and what that can look like. If you're a company and you have one or more employees working for you, you have a second in command right? Whoever Mm -hmm. your first employee working for you is your second in command. That's the person that you're relying on to do stuff. It's why I called the book, the second in command and not the COO. Um, The first place though, that I would get it, let's say you're a true entrepreneurial company. You've got like 25 employees and what you're talking about is hiring like a, a COO or an integrator or a VP of operations or a director of operations, like someone to run lots of the business for you and manage lots of the, the leaders for you. The first thing I would ask you is, do you have an executive assistant? If you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. And we really need to get a lot of the admin off of the people's plates. We really need to get a lot of the functional tasks off their plate that are way below their effective hourly rate because they're wasting so much. I've been talking about this. It's been in my book, Double Double, for probably 14 years about if you don't have any, yeah, you are one. We need to get that stuff off of the entrepreneur's plate first then they can bring in the person to take stuff off their plate that they're not good at and drains them of energy. But it might not be a COO. Mm-hmm. You might be drained of IT and finance and find that if you had a good person handling IT and finance, you could then 
drive hard on sales and marketing and people because you might be really good at it. The key is to understand for yourself as the entrepreneur, what drains you of energy and what do you suck at and how can you hire some people to run those parts of the business for you? If those happen to be operations, then great. But there's definitely leaders out there that have more of the ops hat on, right? There's definitely leaders out there that have more of the IT and engineering hat on, right? Which wouldn't technically be, you know, Gino Wickman wouldn't talk in his book Traction about a, a visionary being strong with IT, but take a look at Tobias Luque. He built Shopify. He's extraordinarily strong at IT and finance, as are most people in the SaaS space and the software space. Like, so the book traction, I think, breaks down a little bit when you get past the 25 to 50 employee mark. Um, it's really good for the very small companies. But you, I'll give you a specific example of where it breaks down. They talk about the integrator being the tiebreaker. That's the equivalent at home. Now, your kids, I think you've got twins that are seven years old. I do, yes. So you're able to tell your kids once in a while, because mommy said so. Mm -hmm. because it's our house <laughs> and you know what seven-year-olds do they listen to you well guess what happens when your twins are 14 and 15 and you tell your twins because mommy said so your twins go this is what we say and they kind of flip you off and they say f you and you're like wait you're my cute little kid that doesn't scale anymore well being the tiebreaker works for managers that don't have the skills to be managers but if you have a strong leadership team who have all run businesses before, they've all run functional areas before, they're not looking for a tiebreaker. They're looking for someone who can facilitate good debate, who can facilitate looking at the data, who can facilitate getting mentors in, who can facilitate hard discussions, who can facilitate the whole forming, storming, norming, performing model so you can actually get in and get dirty and you can leave the meeting with consensus. But you're not looking for a tiebreaker. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we've got to be cautious with with following some of what's there because it doesn't necessarily scale into a mid-sized company. Yeah. It's really become language that, you know, it's, it's difficult to go into any organization right now and that language not at least be there, even if they're not right. following the model fully, it's at least an right. acknowledgement of, I need my integrator, my number two, again, we can call it multiple things. Yeah. I love your distinction of what a second in command is. That is profound because it's something that I, I see so often having come from kind of fortune 50 organizations, mid-sized companies, and now working with a lot of growth organizations, anywhere from, to your point, anywhere from like 10 employees to a thousand employees is kind of my, where I'm spending a lot of time in the last seven years. One of the things I see so often is this confusion around job leveling against the market. Meaning I'm saying I'm hiring a COO, but when we actually do some strategic work on your business, you might yeah. actually just need an EA or you might need yeah. an online business manager. That's well, not a COO. Here's what's happened. So 28 years ago, 1995, 1996 was when title inflation first started and the banks started giving out VP titles to everybody. You could come out of university two years into your banking job and all of a sudden you were a vice president of whatever. And the reality was you weren't really a VP because that VP reported to a senior VP who reported to an executive VP who reported to a COO who reported to the CEO. You were six layers below the CEO. So title inflation started there as a marketing and as a recruiting tool. Then in the rise of the dot-com era from 95 to 2000, we gave away equity in lieu of compensation. So we didn't have enough money to pay people what they deserved. So we gave them stock options and a base pay that was okay. But there weren't big titles given away. 
when the NASDAQ crashed in March of 2000 through to the fall of 2000, crashed by 78%, all of a sudden these employees didn't want stock options, they were worthless. And for the next three years, they wanted to be paid well and they wanted a title because LinkedIn was starting 2003. They wanted to be able to put something on LinkedIn with a title. They wanted to be able to tell their peers they had a title. We had the internet, we had email marketing. So now you were sending out thousands of messages with a title that got you in past the gatekeeper. So that's where title inflation began. Because 30 years ago to get a C-level title, whether you're a COO, CMO, CTO, CFO, whatever, you had to be a major player at a major company. I mean, when you were at Pepsi, the CFO was a baller, right? Mm-hmm. The CTO was a baller. The C- chief, chief marketing officer was a baller. Well, now if you're a chief marketing officer of a 20-person company, you're not a chief marketing officer. You're probably not even a vice president of marketing. You're probably not even a director of marketing. Maybe you're a marketing manager. So this title, let's just talk in the operations slice for a second. The head of operations, the title should be tied to how much money you're willing to pay them, what level of strategic insight they can bring to their business, the amount of P&L responsibility that they have, the amount of autonomy they can have in their role, meaning like how well they can just do their job without being told what to do day to day, and the amount of leadership skills they show up with. Now, if you're paying somebody 120 grand a year, they're not a COO. My COO salary 16 years ago, it got junk, almost 17 years ago now was 306,000. That was 17 years ago. That was a real COO of a real company that, you know, we had, we had 3,000 employees system-wide. Mm-hmm. So we have to be careful. So the other reason you have to be careful giving away titles now, entrepreneurs get sloppy. They're like, I don't really care. Call yourself whatever you want. No, it's confusing internally. It's confusing externally. And now that person that has the CMO or the COO title is now going out on Indeed and Glassdoor and Google to look at what COO should get paid and they want to get paid more. And they make an argument with you and we, we don't really want conflict. So we end up saying yes to stuff. It costs us more on comp and it costs us on confusion. And if you give away a title that's too big too early, they have nothing to chase down. It's it. Oh gosh. <laughs> like I absolutely love, thank you for sharing a little bit more of the history of that. It's been something I've been, it feels like I'm taking my head and smashing against a wall every day, saying the same thing on repeat. It's yeah, I, it, I showed up at 1-800-GOT-JUNK in October of 2000, and there were 14 people in the company. There was Brian. I Sorry, I was employee number 14. There were 13. Brian, there were six people working in the call center, and there were six vice presidents. Only one of the vice presidents had any direct report, and those were the six call center agents. They weren't vice presidents. They didn't have vice president skills, and they were all getting paid 120 grand a year. They were directors. Mm-hmm. So then we had to, then we had to like... Right-size it. Fuck. I know, which is more more of a challenge. It's it's interesting. I I had a client two weeks ago come to me and say, I hired this uh, kind of integrator for my business. She's supposed to be my right hand, my number two, you know. Um, and and honestly, she's doing tactical executional work in marketing. I said, tell me a little bit more about what this number two is doing. And, and hey, she's a digital marketing company, so I get some of the aspects of like education and digital. Okay, there's going to be a place for that to play. She was paying this person $250,000 to do what I would have called in my PepsiCo days, a marketing coordinator type work, you know, and I'm not comparing this entrepreneur to PepsiCo. Those are different things. I'm just saying that the job leveling in the market right now, to your point, has been inflated and it's confusing 
And I think a lot of the times entrepreneurs, to your point, are well overpaying for the capabilities that are in-house and we're not yep. right-sizing some of that leveling internally. Yep. And and I think we need to, we need to learn. So Gen X and Gen Y have, have forgotten how to say no. And we've tried to become this all-inclusive. We don't want conflict. We want harmony. We're trying to make sure everybody's happy, give participation ribbons to everybody. I just heard that British Columbia, where I've been living for years, they're changing the grading system in schools, where an F will now be called progressing. Okay. It used to be failing. Now we're right, you're failing. Okay. Jesus Christ. Like, you get to a point where we need to actually get better at that. And yeah, I think, I think there just needs to be this discussion. We need to have this. Um, and it's why mastermind communities for entrepreneurs are so strong, is because they can share that information with each other. But it's why we needed the COO Alliance was so that we could actually have a place for them to talk to each other as well. I love that. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Okay, one of the things we talk about a lot here is hiring. Once you get clear and clarity first on your org structure and who you need to bring into your organization, hiring is obviously a big topic that we talk about. You've done some hiring in your career. You went from 14 employees to well over 3,000 at Got Junk, multiple other organizations you've built yep. up to thousands of employees. What are some of the key foundational belief systems you have around interviewing and selecting great talent? You have to be really, really clear on what you're looking for. You have to make sure that you understand that in the interview process, you have to go in prepared, meaning you have to review the resume, review their social media, review like the, your notes, like really go in so that you've got multiple questions ready to probe in around all the transitions and all the data points. You have to remember that everybody embellishes, right? Everyone makes it all a little bit better than it really is. So probe like crazy. Um, you have to remember, to, you have to get trained on interviewing. Like there's so many people out there and this, this drives me bonkers. If, if you're running a company or you're managing people and you have to do job interviews and you've not gone through dozens of hours of training on interviewing, you have no business doing a job interview. Like you would never send your kid off to play little league baseball without teaching them how to hold the bat and catch a ball and throw a ball. They'd come home from Little League and say, baseball sucks. Like, no, Johnny, you suck at baseball. The reason business is so difficult is we have all these people hiring people and they have no idea how to do a job interview. So, you know, read top grading, read who, go through my yeah. Invest in Your Leaders course, bring in some consultants, watch some videos on it, practice it, role play it, videotape yourself, but get certified on, on the basic interviewing skills. That's, that's a key one. Um, yeah, I guess those would be my starting points. Yeah, I, that's one thing I see a lot of the times is we've lost the essence of the fact that it's a skill, right? I've, you've been doing this for longer than I have. I've been doing it for 20 years now. Thankfully, I grew up in a foundational environment where training and development was just a part of the ethos. So we were getting trained on everything multiple times over. I'm curious for you. Most haven't. I, I agree. I most absolutely haven't. agree. And so we missed the fact that it's a skill. Okay. Yeah. And I see a lot of the times, oh, I just didn't like the way that so-and-so said this as an answer. It's like, well, did you ask the follow-up question to understand why he said that or why they said that in that capacity? They don't even understand open-ended questions, closed questions, probing. They don't understand. Yeah. They don't understand. And that's that's the key is we need to, to treat this as a skill and really skill up our people. We need to mm. grow our people. Otherwise, you're doomed to keep saying that business is difficult. Business is not difficult. It is so extraordinarily easy if you focus on the critical few things. But if you don't have the basics to do the job, then yes, it's hard, but you're making it hard on yourself. 
<laughs> love this. Love this. I'm curious for you, how much of today sitting in the seat that you are now with multiple years of executive experience interviewing, how many thousands of interviews have, do you think you've conducted in your year, in your life? I don't know if it's been thousands. So, okay, I, I can give you some quantifiable numbers. So I interviewed, hired, and trained 120 franchisees. So that's 120. And then I probably interviewed, you know, four, four to five times that to select out. So that's Agreed. five to 600 interviews. And then probably another couple hundred at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, another 50 or so at ubarter.com, um, another 50 or so at, at Gerber. So yeah, like close to a thousand that I've done. But again, not only have I done it, because I might've done all thousand wrong. I've had multiple training sessions where I've done mock interviews with someone sitting there watching me, giving me feedback and having the candidate give me feedback. I've been vid videoed doing interviews and then I've watched myself doing interviews. I've gone through behavioral interviewing. I've gone through, like I've gone, th I've sat through Jeff Smart's sessions on, on top grading three or four times. I've gone through his dad, Brad Smart sessions a couple of times. I've read multiple books on it. Like, so it's not just like I've done a thousand interviews. I've also got the, I've also done the training. That's it. Yeah. But yeah. I there's the actual that's, behavior. That's, yeah. Like, you know, like, let's say that you're playing golf. Like if you go out and just hit the golf ball constantly, you might, you could put in thousands of hours hitting a golf ball, but if all of a sudden you get a swing coach and you realize, oh, there's actually a way to swing the, the oh shit. Like I didn't know. Well, then yeah. it gets easy. Yeah. So some of it, uh, so some of it's knowing what to do. And then some of it's, you know, getting the development and skill development around it. This is why, again, I believe that every entrepreneur's core job is to grow people. If the entrepreneur would step back from the day to day and focus on growing the skills and growing the competence and growing the network of their people, the company would flourish, but they're often so focused on the day to day. They're, they're, they're majoring in the minors. <laughs> yeah. I talk, I talk a lot about, I use sports analogies all the time when I'm talking about talent. And specifically one that I just, I just connected to and, and I've been talking about a lot is, you know, professional, professional sports teams are recruiting talent that are in junior colleges and high schools and junior programs. They're thinking about quarterbacks and their next talent well in advance of what they need today. And one of the trends I see often with entrepreneurs is we're incredibly reactive to hire. So we feel the pain, we feel it long enough. And then all of a sudden we make oh. knee-jerk reactions to hire versus being proactive. Okay, so here's another huge pet peeve of mine. Every mid-level manager, every early stage manager's solution to every problem is hire more people. And that's almost never the solution to the problem. But because they're not good at saying no, they're not good at strategy, they're not good at seeing kind of from a different perspective, they tend to hire. Every early stage entrepreneur says yes to hiring decisions way too quickly. So if I went to an entrepreneur, if I went to like the person who's listening right now, if I went to you and said, I want to spend $150,000 on a marketing campaign, you would ask me 50 questions about that campaign before you said yes to the 150 grand. But if I came to you and said, I need to hire a head of XYZ for 150 grand and here's why, you would make a decision in 32 seconds. What the fuck is your problem? You need to put the same level of discipline into hiring as you do into to spending money on IT or buying a building or anything else. And we don't. Mm -hmm. And so we get very sloppy with hiring the wrong people for the wrong reasons 
to do work that doesn't need to be done to be managed by people that don't know how to manage. Like anybody managing people needs to be good at situational leadership, but they've never been trained. They all coach people with no training on how to do coaching. They delegate projects with no training and systems on how to use proper delegation. Like the, the amount of complexity that gets erased if you just give them the skills. And the, I, could, I could rattle off 12 core executive functioning skills that I've not only been trained in, but certified in at a, a very competent level. That's why I can grow companies. Mm -hmm. and, 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 but those are skills, like I give those away in my Invest in Your Leaders course. Those are skills that are like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of value that I just kind of give away. How do people get access to that one? It's investinyourleaders.com. It's $750 per person for the life. For oh like, my goodness. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's insane. Yeah, that's yeah. insane. This is, you know, if you're listening to this, you've heard me say this before, and I'm so passionate about it. There's more than just attracting and selecting great talent. In order to think of the lifespan of the talent, you need to think about how you're developing and retaining that talent as well. So I always go, I break it down to three core areas. It's just easier for, for ease, which is attract, develop, retain. Those three core areas need to be focused in how we look at things. Yeah. Listen. And the, the, and the develop part, right? So you know this. Let's say that you spend six weeks recruiting and interviewing and hiring somebody. Why are you spending an hour and a half onboarding them? You should be mm -hmm. onboarding them for six weeks as well, right? And then there should be like the development and skill development, like, it's all around people. The whole thing is people. Oh, I love having, can you come on this podcast every day? Like this conversation <laughs> is just giving me so much energy and just, it's nice to talk to other leaders who get it because leaders, great leaders, I believe that holistically and mm -hmm. the leaders who understand, I honestly, that's, that's what connected me to Dan Martell when I first met him through his wife, Renee was here's a guy who gets it right. Invest in your people and totally. your people run the business. That's the whole philosophy that. I have been trying to speak to since I've come into this entrepreneur world. And I just love having this, this opportunity to ask you these questions because I could not agree more with the philosophy in which you're, what you're talking through and have lived experience through it as well. I yeah. absolutely love it. Thank you. Yeah. And again, yeah. You asked about that mentor question. Like I, I go back to Greg Clark fairly frequently every year or two. And, and I left college pro painters in 1994. So it's been 30 years since I left college pro. I was there for seven years. I go back to him every year or two and say, thank you for the real world MBA that I got. It was just that good. Mm. I love that. I love yeah. that. Well, one other thing we have in common as we, as we wrap today, and, and uh, it's something that I learned about you listening to some of the other podcasts that you've been on, oh. is there was a moment in life where, where you hit a burnout moment that led to a breakthrough. Two moments. Two moments in life. Are you Two open moments. to sharing a little bit more about your experience in leadership yep. getting to that point? I'm going to go off Zoom. I'm in Dubai at an Airbnb. I'm going to go off Zoom to show you one of the moments. And um, you can explain what you're seeing when you see this. This is me in the midst of my second burnout period. Mm. What do you see that's different? Well, I'm going to say you're, you're probably 40 pounds heavier than you are today. <laughs> I'm 42 pounds heavier than I okay, am. Okay. 42. I was yeah. pretty close there. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I would, and I'm six foot four, so I can carry the 40 pounds, but I got fat. I got chunky and I wasn't, I wasn't. So let, let me roll the camera back in the summer of 2000. Uh, we built the company very, very quickly. It was the second company that I'd helped build. 
we were up to 900 employees. We were public. We were selling the company. And uh, we sold our company, which was public to a US, another US public company. And the transaction was supposed to close in April, at the end of April of 2000. Uh, March 15th, Steve Ballmer stood up and said there was an internet bubble. The NASDAQ started to crash. The transaction happened, but kind of fell apart. Our $64 million valuation the day we closed was about three. So we lost $61 million. Um, the NASDAQ crashed by 78%. So all of my stocks were down by 75%. So everything I'd saved and earned over the years had been wiped out. Um, my wife was pregnant. I realized that on the wedding day, I wasn't in love. My mom was dying of cancer. Uh, I was moving from Seattle back up to Vancouver. Um, what else was happening? Anyway, a couple other things happening. Yeah, and just a few I, major life transitions at the same yeah, time. Yeah, like all of them. And uh, I had an employee tap me on the shoulder on, on an elevator, and he said, are you okay? And I turned around to say yes, and I collapsed on the floor of the elevator, shaking and sobbing. And um, I had a complete nervous breakdown. And so then I you know, went out for dinner that night and did the whole like two Manhattans and bottle of red wine and some Grand Marniers and a steak dinner, as we always did five nights a week during the internet boom. And I went to the doctor's appointment. So I had to get a, um, a physical for insurance because we were buying a house and insurance company yep. wanted to have a physical. So the doctor goes, what's going on? I'm like, not much. I've got this, you know, all these weird things happening. I got this weird metallic taste at the back of my neck. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I don't, it's hard to describe. It's almost like I'm chewing on tinfoil. I feel like it's, my neck's always tight. I'm feeling very stressed here. And I almost feel like a, a, a metallic chemical taste. So he gave me this test, and if you get 150 points, you have a 50% chance of a heart attack. If you have 250 points, you have a 90% chance of a heart attack. I was 35 years old. I had 435 points. Oh my goodness. I was clinically redlining. And what was happening was it was a chemical secretion being caused by stress telling me to slow down. He said, what's going on? I gave him the list, and he told me, and I know I'm missing a couple others, but it doesn't matter. Um, I was smoking, I was drinking, I wasn't getting exercise and I thought I was completely fine. So that was the first crash when I realized I wasn't fine. So I started getting exercise and running and getting my shit together, got into 1-800-GOT-JUNK and, and really got my health going again. But then towards the end of got junk, I stayed married to my wife for, for, um, 10 years. And it was during that post got junk not being quite sure, not being super happy that I hit a second brick wall. And, um, mm. and that's the one that I really learned from the second time was, so now I, I don't drink and I exercise. I was at the gym before I did my calls tonight and, you know, I eat healthier and I, um, I talked to therapists for the first time. Like I did 52 sessions with a counselor six years ago. It was massive for me. But yeah. I went through two major, one was written up in the Wall Street Journal. I was written up as one of four supernovas whose careers went very high and we flamed out with stress. Um, so yeah, it was the real deal. Yeah, thank you for sharing. It's uh, deeply impactful when people share their stories. It's something I lived through at you know the day that I got a VP title at PepsiCo, which is what I thought I was you know running running this path of like that was the thing that that I wanted. It was two weeks later I walked into a doctor's office and was told I had a brain tumor. Did you know a woman at, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, Jesus. Yeah, thank you. It's, and all good now, we are healthy. It was, um, you use the exact same language I use, which is 
you know, I was, I was a girl with her head down with this like idea of what the goal was sprinting as fast as I could. I was a high performance athlete. So like, that's what you did. This is how you, this is how you get results. You work harder. And I feel like somebody put a brick wall in front of me and I ran flat out full tilt into it was knocked on my tail, looked straight up and was like, what is this all for? And it completely reframed life and perspective around why we do what we do and what it's all really for. And I think there's some danger in social media in a lot of the Gen Y who aren't married and don't have kids talking about how amazing that, you know, life is good with like yoga and living in Bali and doing all these things. Like that's easy when you're single. Like it's pretty easy to have good balance and go to yoga and eat healthy and do all this when you're single. You start adding to that when there's kids and and running real businesses and there's a lot like it compounds, but I don't think that gives you the reason to not have a healthy life. Like you can actually find it. You just have to make it a commitment. So I do a couple things around that. One is I wrote a vivid vision that describes, I'll actually share with you the one that my wife and I wrote, which is a vivid vision that is a four or five page description of our marriage and how every single aspect of our marriage, it talks about fitness, talks about mm-hmm. faith, talks about finance, talks about friends, travel, vacations, use of substances, sexuality, talks about vacations, everything. Mm-hmm. And we share it with the world. So what happens is when we have a very clear vision of what our life looks like, people are helping us make every sentence come true. So that's one way that we're keeping ourselves honest. Quick question on PepsiCo. When you hit VP at Pepsi, did you know someone at Pepsi, another female executive, last name Baggio? From British, she was down in the U.S. with them for a while. I think mm. I was um, when I hit that. I would I would have been in Canada, and then I li- I was in the southeast region. So it depends the U.S. I was with uh, primarily oh, with Frito Lay. Yeah, we okay. might have missed each other. Yeah, I'm, sure. her, I'm like her, it, brother, her brother was a senior executive at One Eight Hundred Got Junk with me. Okay. I hired Laurie, uh, but I met him when I w- went through my first burnout in Seattle. Uh, anyway. I know it's a small, it is a small world. And usually in the Canadian market, I did know most players, but the name, it might come, it might come to me as we get off, as we get off here today. But uh, thank you for sharing. I'm so, it it means so much that people are open to sharing not only their professional experiences, but also some of the personal experiences they've had as well. You know, I'm curious, um, are there things you're doing today that regulate that nervous system so that you don't go there again? Well, yeah, diet, um, a little bit more with meditation, mindfulness, um, grounding, um, better, way better sleep habits, um, doing a lot more with like cryotherapy and red light therapy and saunas and exercise. Like I've been in the gym the last three days. I did a sauna yesterday. Tomorrow I'm going to go do cryotherapy. Like we're just much more present around that stuff. Beautiful. You know, again, just drinking, like I'm guzzling water. This is my third bottle of water tonight. Um, yeah, I haven't had a drink in seven months and 20 days, which for me was, I was a bottle of red wine every single night for six years. And then finally, I'm like, why am I doing that? Like I was healthy and I'm still drinking wine. So just making those healthy choices. I love it. Yeah. Thank healthier you for sharing. Choices. Healthier. I love that. Yeah. yeah I've been uh, definitely getting in, in and out of cold water has been a big one for me, a new one for me last year, doing some saunas movement, all those other things. But the cold water is something that's new to me, uh, relatively new to me. And it definitely pulls you into your body immediately because there's nowhere else to run. You have to go and stay present. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. My wife has been way better at cold plunges than I have. I've been doing, I've done some, but um, I need to get something for my toes. I can be in them for much longer, but I feel like my toes are going to fall off in 30 seconds and I lose my, my mind. 
I have, um, I have a girlfriend that is trained in it and she has little booties that help when people have that exact same situation. I'll get them. I'll make sure I send them over to you as a thank you for being on the show today. Well, I did, I did the coldest of cold water plunges. I uh, did the cold water plunge in Antarctica two years ago. And that was freaking cold, man. When icebergs are floating past you and it's salt. I think the temperature of the water was 31 degrees Fahrenheit. So it was just one, just slightly below freezing, but salt water freezes a few degrees lower. Um, yeah, it was freaking cold, man. <laughs> well, hey, you if you if you've done it there, then we can definitely get you in another cool plunge. No, but you're and... out as fast as you're in. You do... <laughs> I know. You're in. You're like, wow. It's the pull. It's a real polar plunge when you jump in and you jump yeah. out really quickly. You don't yeah. even have time to it's find your breath. Good. I love good. it. Cameron, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for spending your time, energy, just wisdom pouring into us today. I'm going to make sure that every uh, link to Cameron is in the show notes. So to find him on all socials and to make sure that you get access to his books, I'm going to link everything up. Um, In order for this to be really fun, if you took something away today, please tag both Cameron and I on social media and any one of your platforms. And I'm going to send you a copy of his second in command on me as a thank you for listening to us and joining us right to the end. Thanks, Jackie. Appreciate it. Amazing, Cameron. We'll talk to you soon, guys. We'll see you again on the Jackie Server Show. Thank you for listening in to today's show. If there was a key message that landed with you, please share or send us a direct message on Instagram at Jackie Service and let us know. We love hearing from you. Also, to continue to keep this podcast growing, it would mean the world if you could take a minute and like and rate the show or share it with a friend. Our team is forever grateful. Until next time, we'll see you again on the Jackie Service Show.